You're listening to the best of Halford and Bruff. You're listening to Halford and Bruff. Sometimes you lose, and sometimes you get you get beat. You know, there's a difference. And now a fight it unfurls on the field, and we're not over-exaggerating that. There were punches thrown. These sour-ass Niners can go ahead and get out of town. Good morning, Vancouver. 6.01 on a Tuesday. Happy Tuesday, everybody. It is Halford. It is Bruff. It is Sportsnet 650. We are coming to you live from the Kintech Studios in beautiful Fairview Slopes in Vancouver. Jason, good morning. Good morning. Hey, dog. Good morning to you. Good morning. Laddie, good morning to you as well. Hello, hello. Halford and Bruff of the Morning is brought to you by the Delari family of Accurate Dealers. Experience the Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Accurate Dealer today. We are in hour one of the program. Hour one is brought to you by everythingfinancial.com. Financial freedom awaits. Book your introductory meeting today. Visit them online at everythingfinancial.com. And we are coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at kintech.net. Our guest list begins today at 6.30 with Greg Wyshynski from ESPN. Now, I mention ESPN because they're doing something special tonight hmm. down in the States. For the first time in NHL history, all six, all 16 games, 32 teams, are going to be played on the same night. None of them are going to start at the same time. Yes, they call them staggered start times. It's called Frozen Frenzy in the United States of America. They are going to have six and a half hours of uninterrupted hockey coverage. They're actually going to try and do a red zone style broadcast with the NHL tonight. I am fascinated to see how this is going to turn out. Is that on the ESPN main network then? ESPN. ESPN. ESPN Tonight on ESPN, all of them. ESPN, ESPN2, and ESPN Plus are all showing hockey at various points tonight. But is there a red zone channel? There's not a specific red zone channel. Oh, I see. Okay. They're going to be flipping it around. We'll talk to Wish about this more at 630 because, look, for what's going on right now, uh, a major, major sort of innovation in the broadcast. They're talking about changing the draft. There's a lot of things going on mm-hmm. with the NHL right now. So we'll talk to Greg Wyshynski at 6.30 about all that. 7 o'clock, Willie Donich is going to join the program. He is the play-by-play voice of the Nashville Predators. The Vancouver Canucks are in Nashville tonight. Note the start time, 6.15 Pacific Standard Time. Willie's going to join us to talk about the Predators. Tonight's opponent, that is the final game of the Canucks road swing. 7.30 Vanny Sartini is going to join the program. He, of the playoff-bound Vancouver Whitecaps, he also of the new two-year contract extension, which you'll see him stay on as the manager of the Whitecaps until 2025, will preview the uh, best-of-three playoff series against LAFC. Vanny's got a couple familiar friends on that team. His former boss, Mark DeSantos, now the assistant manager of uh, the uh, LAFC team, and Max Crapo, the goalie. I want to ask him what he thinks of the best of three format. It's weird. It's very weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's unlike. Well, I mean, it's not weird it is. for North American sports. A best of three. We've seen lots of best of threes in North America for soccer, though, and for the guys that grew up watching soccer and playing soccer in Europe. I'm sure it's a little odd. That conversation happens at seven thirty. Vanny Sartini is going to be on the show. Eight o'clock. Brendan Bachelor 
play-by-play voice of the Vancouver Canucks. He'll be on the call tonight when the Canucks take on the Preds. We'll set things up, look back on hashtag the start and this five-game road swing with Brendan Batchelor. Uh, we are giving away a pair of tickets to see the Canucks and Blues tonight. No, sorry, we're giving away today. The game is on Friday at Rogers Arena. If you would like to win a pair of tickets, we're going to give them away to the best what we learn submission. Hashtag WWL. Add a ticket emoji into your text. And importantly, the Dunbar Lumber text line is 650-650. Get them in. Tickets. Pair of tickets to see the Canucks and Blues on Friday at Rogers Arena. So working in reverse on the guest list. 8 o'clock, it's Brendan Batchelor. 7.30, Vanny Sartini. 7 o'clock, Willie Donich. And 6.30, it's Greg Wyshynski. Uh, that's what's happening on the program today. Laddie, let's tell everybody what happened. Hey, did you guys see the game last night? No. no. What happened? I missed all the action because I was... What happened? Brought to you by the BC Construction Safety Alliance, making safety simpler by giving construction companies the best in tools, resources, and safety training. Visit them online at bccsa.ca. There was a couple football games last, sorry, a couple baseball games last night. There was a football game, but we start with your Vancouver Canucks and a day off in Nashville. I wonder what they got up to. Uh, yeah, they had the day off in Nashville after they practiced on a Sunday. They'll probably skate this morning ahead of tonight's game uh, against the Predators. Again, the start time for this game on this frozen frenzy night, 6.15 hour time. Um, Sunday at practice, Hoaglander had replaced Stadnika on the fourth line, so Hoaglander should get back into the lineup, uh, assuming those practice lines are going to be the game lines. Uh, as for the opponents, we'll talk more uh, with Willie Donich about the Nashville Predators, but the Preds are 3-3. Three and three. They've won two straight, and this is interesting and maybe a little bit surprising. We can talk to Willie about this. They boast some, boast some of the best 5-on-5 five five analytics in the league. In fact, they're averaging 35.5 shots per game. Only Colorado and Toronto are higher in that category. So even though the Preds, I don't think many people are predicting them to make the playoffs. They're in a bit of a retooling phase. Uh, Some old names have gone out the door. Uh, Ryan Johansson and Matt Duchesne no longer there. Some old guys came in the door. Some old guys came in the door and Ryan O'Reilly and Luke Shen. Um, This should be a test for a Canucks team. That hasn't exactly controlled play at five on five in their first five games. And that's something that Rick Tockett wants to improve on. So perhaps this is a good test for the Canucks. And by the way, uh, Nashville will be in Vancouver on October 31st, Halloween night. So the Canucks and the Preds are going to play twice in the next little while. Um, so we'll talk more about the Canucks game uh, later on in the show. Brendan Batcher is going to join us at 8 o'clock. Montreal went into Buffalo and beat the Sabres 3-1. to The loss dropped Buffalo's record to 2-4-0. A pretty disappointing start considering expectations. And also, they're probably looking at Detroit and going, wow, Detroit's a wagon. Yeah. They're on fire. They're 5-1. and Ottawa looks a lot better this season. Ottawa might challenge for a playoff spot. Meanwhile, we're still the Buffalo Sabres. Yeah, it's been a, I'd say, rather disappointing start. Not just disappointing, but given, one, how flat they've looked, and then two, as you put it, 
in comparison with the other teams in the Atlantic Division that everyone assumed were going to make hashtag the start, right? Mm -hmm. The leap to try and get into playoff contention. Buffalo's falling behind. They're not scoring enough goals. I mean, that's been their biggest Achilles heel thus far. Well, they got goalied by Jake Allen last night. And by the way, the Habs improved to 3-1-1. and uh, Jake Allen had a really good night. And uh, Tanner Pearson, remember him? We need to talk about Tanner Pearson. Yeah, he scored his third goal of the season. So good for Tanner Pearson. He actually scored it on the power play um, in Horvat's spot. We've got audio of it. Here's Tanner Pearson scoring the insurance goal last night in Montreal's 3-1 win over Buffalo. Newhook, down low, Gallagher, front scores! Tanner Pearson snaps it all with four seconds to go in the power play. So we need to talk about Tanner? Um, yeah, I mean, not I, really. Well, I think it's a great, I think it's, it's good gr- for him. It's a great story uh, individually because yeah. I was not 100% certain based on how much uncertainty there was around the hand mm. that he was going to be able to even resume his NHL career. I'm and sure he wasn't certain either. To be an effective member of the league and of society, but he's on a line with Sean Monaghan and Brendan Gallagher, which <laughs> the is old guy's line he, in on that team. Yeah, that's the grandpa <laughs> line. I mean, that is a very, very veteran laden team, veteran laden line, and it just it's one of those it's a young that, team. It just kind of works. It clicks. There's no mm. particular rhyme or reason why, but good on all three of them. They're going to need to carry a bigger load in Montreal this year. By that, I mean that Monaghan, Gallagher, Pearson line because of the loss of Kirby Doc for the season. Mm-hmm. Other guys are going to need to be counted on. And look, I would not be surprised if after the Doc injury, Marty St. Louis and the team leaders probably challenged everyone to, hey, don't let us fall off a cliff here. Let's try and be in that playoff contention that some of these other teams are looking to get into. I don't mm-hmm. think they'll get there. No. But they need to show growth in their game. They can't just flatline after an injury like that. Yes, Greg? Sean Monahan, he's 22 points in 30 games since joining the Habs. Obviously, huge injury problems last year, mm-hmm. but five points in five games this year. Is he back? Uh, I'm a bit hesitant to say that because of it's the health. small sample size. The health yeah. factor is the problem. I mean, that goes for Galley, and that well, probably goes for Pearson too. too, right? They're older. They're yeah. injury prone. Yeah. If they can keep it up over, God, 40 games, then maybe we can start the talking Habs, about this. The Habs, don't forget, had a kind of an encouraging start last season, and then they completely fell apart. Uh, let's move on to the baseball. Uh, get the game six out of the way because I want to get to the game seven. The Arizona Diamondbacks forced... A game seven, so that's going to be in Philly tonight. So there's a lot of sports to watch. There's a game seven in baseball between the Phillies and the Diamondbacks. Um, But the story of the night in baseball last night was the Texas Rangers eliminating the Houston Astros in seven games in a bizarre series where all seven games were won by the road team. Mm -hmm. Now, didn't this happen to the Astros a couple of years? Wasn't there World it's the Series? Se- it's only the second time in MLB history that a best of seven series has been decided by all road wins. But wasn't the Astros? Wasn't it the 2019 Correct. World Series? 2019 against yeah. Washington, yeah. Yep. went on to win it. Right. There is something wrong <laughs> fundamentally with the Houston Astros playing baseball at home. Yeah, it's weird. Because huh? this isn't just a playoff sample size. They were sub 500 during the regular season. I think they were 40 and 47. Their combined record was 40 and 47 if you include Okay, the if you include the own. Yeah. yeah, it was a I don't know why. Mm-hmm. None of it makes any it's sense. I would also like to add that they just didn't lose at home. They got punked at home. They got bombed. Adolis Garcia, I don't know why they were pitching to him by the end of that series. Uh ALCS MVP finishes with 15 RBI in the series. A question for Bruff. Yes. With the Rangers getting one step closer to exiting the sad club, does yeah. that make you sad or happy 
Uh, I'm happy for the Texas Rangers. Yeah, it's so so leaving the SAG club is a good thing in your eyes. Like it makes you happy. Depends on the sport. Depends on the team. I don't want the Sabers to leave the SAG club. It's one more team that did it before the Canucks. Look, I'm going to be dead honest. When we've taken, and I'm using the royal we here, when we've taken the SAG club to other sports, sometimes it's not as doesn't work as ruined because Mm -hmm. there's too much. Franchise movement mm. and you know cities have won titles, but franchises. Well, have NFL is tough too because you're like, do you count uh, and like what was it? The AFL before the or, AFL like, NFL like, merger, yeah, right? Yeah, like yeah. so, I count. I actually in in terms of sad club for the NFL, I'll count like an NFL title before mm. the Super Bowl, but I sure. won't count. Was it AFL? Is that what it was? The yeah. American, yeah. yeah, yeah. I won't count those. I think the important thing to note here is that if you're just talking about the World Series, right, yeah. which is a tried and true Major League Baseball trophy and tradition, the Rangers are just one of six Major League teams without one. And I think adding to their sad club resume is that they went to back to back World Series mm-hmm. in 2010 and 2011. In 2011, they were one strike away, so they got as close as you can physically get to getting out of the sad club, and now they'll get an opportunity. I really hope it's Philly. I hope it's Philly, too. I, I just don't want the Diamondbacks. I just I mean, I don't I, mind uh, the team. They're, I, yeah, but... They're, they're like they're potatoes. Just, they're kind of neat. They have all these guys that are yeah. somewhat interesting. Noted fantasy football enthusiast Tommy Pham, former Blue Jay, Lourdes Gurriel Jr. Evan Longoria is still playing ball. former Blue Jays. They don't, yeah, that Dalton. Yeah, Marshall but isn't that kind of annoying when the Blue Jays fans are like the whole time throughout the series? They're just like, Ross Atkins, see what you did there. Well, yeah, it's Can funny. you blame them? No, <laughs> I can't, but it's still annoying. It's like, it's not about you guys. You guys are out. So, if Bo Horvat went to the Stanley Cup final last year. Would yeah, Canucks fans not be a little bitter about it? And I'm sure <laughs> we'd be annoying to the rest of the league, right? Like, that's the thing. I just want to watch, I just want to watch a series, and I hope it's the Phillies. So, uh, we'll find out tonight on that. Phillies home field advantage throughout these playoffs. Mm. Tonight's going to be the decider as to whether it was a real thing or just a bunch of noise because they cannot lose this game tonight. Yeah. I, I don't know what else to then say. The Philly fans will turn on them. Right. We're like, back to being Philly fans. So the, up- this optimism. the upside of them losing the game tonight would be all the chaos. Well, yeah. you know what? I The guys on CBS Sports Radio, which uh, airs before us here on Sportsnet 650, they were talking about like, just watch what happens if they lose, because a lot of these people just be like, we're just pivoting to the Eagles. Thanks. Like, this was a fun sort of yeah. brief foray into baseball. And we got really excited. We love Bryce Harper, who, by the way, hasn't done anything at the plate and didn't do it last night for a couple games now. And Nick Castellanos is one for 20 in this series. The bats aren't going. Here's the thing with that crowd. If they're sending the long ball and sending these moonshots, it electrifies that crowd. If what happens last night when the bats go silent, there's no, it's great pitching and great defense mm-hmm. isn't going to lift that crowd. They got to sock some dingers. That is my baseball analysis. For the um, so your football analysis, uh, analysis a couple of weeks ago was that, fine, I admit it, Brock Purdy is good. The 49ers have now lost two in a row, and Brock Purdy, while not looking awful necessarily, has not looked all that good. The 49ers lost again yeah. last night in Minnesota. Brock Purdy with a couple of <laughs> interesting interceptions. You're uh, mostly talking about the one at the end of the game. I no, saw no, you no, tweet the, out. No, well, the first no, one no, wasn't very first, good either. No, the first one was the worst one. The second one you understand because he was in a position where he had to force some throws because the 49ers had like 40 seconds left and they needed a touchdown, not a field goal to win the game. Yeah. So the second one, I'll be like, all right, you got to take some chances. The first one was just like, a, I don't know what happened there. It was maybe timing was off with the receiver, but it was a terrible throw. And and all of a sudden, 
than this 49ers team that looked honestly unstoppable at the beginning of the season. They've run into some injury issues. Yes, that's an excuse for Brock Purdy and the 49ers. Definitely. I don't Christian McCaffrey played yesterday. He scored another touchdown. guys and I don't know if McCaffrey was 100% but all of a sudden 49ers fans might be looking at their quarterback situation and going uh, maybe Brock Purdy isn't the next coming of Tom Brady. I mentioned the final interception. Laddie's got the call here because we didn't just use the television call for the Vikings wrapping up victory. We went straight to Minnesota Radio WFAN. If you want to hear what a Homer broadcaster sounds like Listen to this. Here we are. The game-winning interception for the Vikes last night over the 49ers. Purdy back to pass him and he needs to sack him. He loops it over the middle. Intercepted! Yes! The Vikings beat the Niners! And Cam Bynum has a two-interception night. And now a fight it unfurls on the field. And we're not over-exaggerating that. There were punches thrown. These sour-ass Niners can go ahead and get out of town. These sour-ass Niners can go ahead and get out of town. It's a good I, line. Yeah, I want Batch to drop that on Friday when the Canucks beat the St. Louis Blues and there's a fi- any sort of fisticuffs during the game. Get out of here, St. Louis. Anyway, uh, the Brock Purdy thing. If you look at the numbers, it was aside from, and I put more onus on the late interception because they showed the replay and there was actually a couple different safety valves he could have done to keep the game alive. Right. But he did have to force the ball downfield in that situation. Overall, Brock Purdy went 21 of 30 passing, so well above 50%, closer to 60 or 70 for 272 yards, and he orchestrated a couple scoring drives. Wasn't like a all-star, all-world performance. To me, the bigger concern for San Francisco right now is how the hell did Kirk Cousins go 35 of 45 passing Mm -hmm. for 378 yards? And wait a minute, the most crazy stat of them all did not get sacked a single time. This defense of San Francisco was supposed to be the lifeblood of that team. Yeah, the offense is great, right? But Brock Purdy was getting the ball to playmakers in positions to make plays. Defensively, they weren't going to allow a lot of points. They went through the first four or five games of the season holding everybody at under 20. I can't believe that Cousins and that Minnesota offense without Justin Jefferson. It's just one game, though. I mean, they, it's not like Cleveland racked up a bunch of points on them. No, but it, yards. coming off a loss mm-hmm. in which you should have won the football game, yep. I did not expect of all the people to win on primetime mm-hmm. and to have a game, Kirk Cousins... And the Minnesota Vikings. I was sure the Vikings were going to blow that at the end just because they're the Vikings and just because I've seen it so many times. Mm-hmm. And Vikings fans, I guarantee, expected them to lose at the end of that. And when they finally won, they were probably like, wait a minute, we won? Yeah, it That's was incredible. So We're three and four. Well, I'll tell you this. That put San Francisco at five and two after Seattle's uh, frustrating loss to Cincinnati two weeks ago and then a... We got to have it, but we didn't play great win over Arizona. That division looks a lot interesting. I'll remind everybody that Seattle and San Francisco still have the two divisional games to play Mm -hmm. against each other, and they do it almost in back-to-back scenarios. It's week 12 and week 14. Can we also talk about the fact that there isn't a single team in the NFL that hasn't had kind of an embarrassing loss this season? Like, all the good teams. Like I know everyone's like... The Eagles, right? Like they, they, nobody, nobody feels better now that they've seen the 49ers struggle a bit, and maybe Brock Purdy isn't all people have been chalking him up to be. Um, maybe, uh, of course, they've you know 
they're probably looking at and going like we're we're the favorites in the NFC now, right? Yeah. But they had a bad loss to the Jets. Like that wasn't a great loss. They yeah. bounced back. I know the Jets have a good defense, and I know the Jets aren't the worst team in the NFL. But I'm just looking around at some of these teams, right? Like Detroit, they lost to the Seahawks at home, and they got blown away by Detroit, Baltimore, yeah. right? The you look at uh, Miami; they've had a couple of bad losses. The Bills. Uh, I've had some dreadful losses. Even Kansas City has lost. So Kansas City's probably the only one that hasn't had a real "quote unquote" embarrassing loss. Right? right. They lost on yeah. opening night, and then have since racked up. Uh, I think it's five or six consecutive wins. But it's a good point to bring up because right now, if you're looking at it, all signs, in my opinion, anyway, are the Eagles are the best team in the NFC. And the Chiefs are the best team in the AFC. And then there's a couple teams that you maybe could say have a puncher's chance. But I think there's almost a divide right now. Mm-hmm. I know that the AFC is probably a little bit more top-heavy. If you still consider, I don't know what I consider Buffalo right now. Uh, reasonably close to being a contender, but I would put Baltimore firmly in that mix and a handful of other teams as well. But to me, it's... Philly, in light of what's happened in the last two weeks in San Francisco, I would put Philly ahead of San Francisco. I don't know if you'd do the same. Yeah, I would power yeah, rank yeah, the NFC. Sure. I think that would be it. Uh, real quick, because we've only got a couple minutes before we go to break and come back with Greg Wyshynski, we should mention that an absolutely massive NBA deal went down yesterday, and that is that Yanis Antetokounmpo of the Milwaukee Bucks signed a three-year, $186 million contract. Wow, that's like five million a season. I will repeat, not thirty years, not thirteen years. One, two, three years. One hundred and eighty-six million to stick with Milwaukee. This is a massive, massive moment in what's been a massive offseason for the Milwaukee Bucks because the possibility of Giannis leaving was hanging out there after their early playoff exit last year. They fired the coach. It looked like the team was in a bit of disarray. Mm-hmm. If you want to talk about an organization showing how badly they wanted to keep a guy around. They swing a huge trade to bring in a superstar in Damian Lillard to play alongside Giannis, and then they break open the bank. Now, this is going to be fascinating because Giannis has said, I want to play my entire career with one organization and one franchise. Mm -hmm. And if this continues to go the way that it's going, he will certainly do that. He's now put himself in that conversation for what's his legacy going to look like? Where is he going to rank among the all-time greats? Because there's one particular thing this put him in rarefied air. He's got a regular season MVP, a finals MVP, and a defensive player of the year. Only two other guys in NBA history have done that. One is Michael Jordan, and the other is Hakeem Olajuwon. So he's now in that... Were, were, were they good? I know, they were I know. all right. Were they, they could play yeah. the hoopies pretty well. Mm-hmm. So they're now he's now in rarefied air. And interestingly, he's going to st- spend, I think, his entire career in... Wisconsin, mm-hmm. which is just bizarre because the tradition has been, hey, you're an NBA superstar. Why don't you go play in a real market? So a couple of thoughts on this. At one sports buck, I looked at the Bucks are plus 350 favorites to win the title next season. Now, there are some teams that are close to them in terms of the odds. The Celtics plus 400 and the defending champion uh, Denver Nuggets are at plus 450. So the Bucks are the favorites to win next season's NBA title. I also think about poor Joel Joel Embiid in Philadelphia, who just saw what the Bucks did, and he's sitting there going, uh, "What are the Sixers going to do for me? Hmm. Because we've got some problems here in Philly, and I don't know if I want to be here 
for the rest of my career, the way things are going. Yeah, I mean, look at the look at that Eastern Conference now. I mean, where would you put Philadelphia in the pecking order? It's not even really close, to be honest. The title's going to go through Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. It's not going to go through Milwaukee. It's going to go through Boston. If it's not going to go through Boston, it's going to go sh- through Miami. I still think about that game that they had at home to clinch that series over the Celtics mm-hmm. and how different things might have looked now. If they had just won that game. Uh, oh, hold on. I need to make a correction because Karn put it out. I said Bryce Harper didn't do anything over the last few games. It was last game. I'm sorry. It was, what was it? 0 for 9, Schwarber, Turner, and Harper in, in game six. That's what I was referring to. So thank you, Karn, for pointing that out. I was aware that Bryce Harper hit a, a home run. Oh, so in it's baseball. Game you can't go one game with down yeah. game. And the, it was the three like, guys all over you. It's the three guys that went over nine. You, you kind of made it seem like he was struggling badly at the plate. That's not, that wasn't my intent, and I do apologize. So mm-hmm. that, that that's that's on me. I'll take the lumps on that one, Karn the plumber. Thank you for pointing it out. Uh, and Greg, thank you, Laddie, for replying and saying I just decided to let Halford say something stupid. Okay, you're listening to the best of Halford and Bruff. You're listening to the best of Halford and Bruff. Eight oh three on a Tuesday. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Halford Bruff, Sportsnet six fifty. Halford and Bruff in the morning is brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. We are in hour three of the program. Brandon Bachelor, play-by-play voice of the Canucks, is going to join us in just a moment here. Hour three of this program is brought to you by Campbell and Pound Real Estate Appraisers. Trust the expertise of Campbell and Pound. Visit them on the internet at campbell-pound.com today. We are coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider. Supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at kintech.net. Tonight, it is the Canucks. It is the Predators. You can hear it right here on Sportsnet 650, beginning at... 6.15 our time. <laughs> 6.15. Uh, the old 6.15 puck drop. Love it. Joining us now, the man who will be on the call, Brendan Batchelor here on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 6.50. Morning, Batch. How are you? Good morning. And yeah, more precisely, it will be at uh, 6.23 because the NHL never drops the puck at the time they say they're going to. So tune in at 6.15. Randeep and I will be on the air, but the puck doesn't actually drop for eight more minutes after that. So if you had to pick one thing to watch for tonight, what would it be from a Canucks perspective? You just want to see them build on some of these good performances that they've had through the road trip and not, you know, end up you know, having a, a stinker or a, a game like they did in Philadelphia. Um, you know, I, I've liked some of the things I've seen, certainly in the game in Florida, you know, to maybe a lesser extent, the game in Tampa. But they they need to, you know, against a Predators team that I heard you guys talking earlier takes a lot of shots. They need to try and limit that because they've averaged, you know, more than 36 shots against per game. They're, you know bottom four in the league in terms of the number of shots they give up. And the Predators not only take a lot of shots, but they generate a lot of scoring chances. They're first in the league in scoring chances generated to this point in the season. So the Canucks need to be tight to their structure defensively if they want to have success tonight. Batch, what is the reason in your mind that the Canucks are having trouble dictating play at five on five? We'll give you a couple of options. 
are they unable to keep plays going in the offensive zone? Are there too many one-and-done forays into the offensive zone? Or is the problem more in the defensive zone? Because I noticed the other day that Rick Tockett was talking about you know, the need to squash plays in the corner. And that often is a translation for we got to break up the cycle and get the puck going the other way. Yeah, I mean, the the actual answer is a little bit of both. Um, But I agree that I think, you know, particularly on the walls, they at times have a tough time getting the puck out when they really need to relieve pressure and get a change. And, you know, already through the, the first handful of games here, I can think of a number of, of sequences where, you know, we're, we're calling the game and we're looking at the, the player tracking and puck tracking data. And it's like, oh, you know, four of the five guys have been out there for 90 seconds already. And they're clearly tired in their own zone. And the other team is continuing to work the puck around. And, you know, you know, occasionally they get a line change and the Canucks tired players are still out there. And that's something we've seen from the Canucks you know, over the last few years where, you know, the, the, the board battles, especially the ability to clear the defensive zone has at times been a real Achilles heel for them and has led to, you know, sustained stretches of pressure against which, you know, will either end up with the puck in the back of your net or will end up with you taking a penalty, the other team going to the power play. And then based on how bad the penalty kill has been over the last couple of seasons, the puck ending up in the back of your net anyway. So uh, that's one of the many things that's on Rick Tockett's to-do list, I'm sure, in terms of, you know, being able to effectively break up the cycle, but then not only being able to do that, but then being able to clear the puck effectively or transition out of your own zone so that you're not just turning it over at your own blue line and, and getting caught in your own zone for extended stretches. So that's certainly something that this team has struggled with in the past. We've seen some instances where they've struggled with it to start this season. And um, the sooner they can limit those sort of sequences, the better they'll be served for it. Uh, I don't want to pick on the defenseman, but when it comes to breaking up the cycle and getting the puck going the other way, um, yes, the forwards have their responsibilities, especially the centers, but a lot of this is on the defenseman. You know, I thought one of the, you know, This is kind of a detour, but one of the things that was very underrated about Alex Edler when he was in his prime is if the puck went into the corner, he was getting it because he was big, he was physical, and he was smart. He had a good technique for winning puck battles. Do the Canucks have enough defensemen that can do that? No. I mean, it's 100% a personnel issue at this point when, you know, for the second half of the game the other night after they moved Myers down, you're essentially playing Mark Friedman, who you only just acquired last week and has, what, 66, 67 career NHL games to his name in your top four. So that that to me, you know, in particular highlights that you're still one top four defenseman short. And so when you have to trust either Myers or Friedman, mm. and, you know, we'll see if they, you know, move Ian Cole to the right side at some point to to try and address that. But then you're trusting Carson Soucy in a top four role if you do that in all likelihood uh, as he would elevate up on that left side. I'm not convinced by any of those potential solutions. So uh, I would imagine it's part of the reason why the Canucks would really like to move on from Connor Garland is because you create some cap flexibility and maybe you can add another defenseman that uh, at least papers over that crack. But as long as you're a team that is playing with three top four defensemen, you're going to be in tough. 
Sometimes you get mismatched out there, and there are going to be situations where you get hemmed in or you've got guys in a bad spot that, you know, we talk so much about guys being put into a position to succeed, particularly that second-pairing spot on the right side. It feels like whoever's playing there is playing, you know, above their head and is, is sort of destined to fail to a certain extent because none of the guys they have are properly suited to that role in that amount of ice time. So this is why Rick Tockett talked about defense by committee, and it's probably why we'll see some of these issues linger going forward is because they just don't have the personnel to be a better defensive team than they are at this point. They can be a better defensive team than they were last year, certainly, but I don't know how high that ceiling is until they address that spot in particular. Yeah, and I just don't know what the solution is, right? There isn't an easy solution. Sometimes you've just got a problem and you've got to wait a while to fix it. But Tyler Myers only played two shifts in the third period against the Florida Panthers. And I think that says a lot for as much as the coaching staff is going to stick up for its players. And it hasn't gotten to the point where Tyler Myers has been a healthy scratch yet. There's clearly trust issues now that are being developed between the coach and the player. Absolutely. And and that's where we saw that move made was on the, the first Florida goal where he kind of gets caught out of position. And, you know, there probably should have been another forward back on that sequence as well. But he gets caught chasing wide on the boards and it creates a lane right down the middle for Barkov to skate in on goal and tie the game. After that, he was moved to the third pairing. And it's clear that with some of the decisions he's made lately, um, that, that the coaching staff is losing trust in him. You know, over the past couple of years, in each of the last two seasons, he's been Vancouver's penalty kill minute leader. And last I checked, he was fifth this season. And I bet you that number has even dropped since the last game. So um, it's clear that there is a lack of trust there from the coaching staff. The fact that he was demoted to the third pairing and a guy like Mark Friedman, who is basically a Band-Aid, was played in the top four for, you know, the second half of that game the other night in Florida. And to be perfectly honest, it went better than it did when Myers was playing in the top four. Uh, I think that says a lot about where his game is at right now. And in terms of, um, you know, trying to, to figure out a solution to that issue, the reality might be that the only way you can do it is when you get out of this season, you get out from underneath Tyler Myers' cap hit, you have some flexibility, and maybe you can go out and find another guy that will be better suited in that role than either Myers or Friedman or Juleson are on that right side right now. And I, I don't want it to sound like I'm picking on Tyler Myers you know, individually because he hasn't been very good. But again, getting back to what I was talking about earlier, he's being played in a role where he's being set up for failure. He's mm-hmm. not a top four defenseman in the NHL anymore. And the fact that they have to play him there is more a reflection of the lack of depth or lack of quality that they have in their defensive group than a reflection of his play when being put in that role where you couldn't reasonably expect him to have success. So having said all that, do you see it as tenable that the Canucks continue to pair Quinn Hughes and Philip Peronik together? I don't, but I could see it continuing if you were willing to move Ian Cole to the right side on mm-hmm. the second pairing. And then you can elevate Carson Soucy. And again, I don't think that's a great solution either. I'm not convinced that Soucy is a top four defenseman in the NHL at this point, but 
I'd like to see them at least try that, Ian Cole, on the right side, just because it's something that they haven't really explored at all to this point, and it's clear that, you know, the 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 options they have on that right side right now aren't working. As I said, they don't have a second-pairing right-shot defenseman. Ian Cole has played the right side in his career before. He's played it on championship-caliber teams. Why wouldn't you take a look at it? And then, you know, building on that, I think it would make more sense, from my perspective anyway, if you're moving Ian Cole to the right side that you should put in with Quinn Hughes and then move Heronic down and you're kind of spreading that out a little bit and you can go Susie Heronic, which we saw at times during the preseason and you can go Hughes Cole and that to me at least feels like a more safe mm-hmm. top four grouping but um, you know that there is an argument that says why should you play it safe you know put your horses together let them play half the game and hope that you know the the benefit you get from having those two guys play together outweighs how much having the other four guys on the ice the rest of the time hurts you but uh, I'm sure these are things that we will see from this coaching staff as the season goes forward especially if the defensive issues and the stuff that has plagued them in their own zone to this point in the season continues Um, but for the moment they they seem determined to keep Ian Cole on that left side. I just wonder how long that's going to last. Let's talk about one of the big positive developments from that Florida game, and that was the return of Ilya Mikheyev. How much does he bring to that top line with Pedersen and Kuzmenko? Yeah, he brings a lot. Um, you know, that is a line, and both of you know Pedersen and Kuzmenko are great skilled offensive players but the one thing they were lacking is someone with speed someone that can get in on the forecheck that can hassle the opposition defense and create opportunities or create turnovers or make it more difficult on the other team so that they can sustain some offensive zone time and Mikheyev brings that and I think you saw in the game against the Panthers how much more dangerous that line looked just from having Mikheyev on it you know he had that great chance off the rush that he wasn't quite able to tip home I think it was OEL got back and kind of broke the play up partially but uh, you know as Mikheyev gets used to being back in games and gets more comfortable with his uh, recovering knee that is something to watch for me that that line could really explode offensively and you know Pedersen's already had a tremendous offensive start to the season I think Kuzmenko uh, was a little bit quiet early on but you heard him talk after the game the other night about how much it means to him to have Mikheyev back on that line and you know I was thinking about this we were talking about it on the pregame show the other night you look at the Miller line, and I think we could probably all agree that's been Vancouver's most consistent line to this point in the season, at the very least, if not their best line in terms of how effective they've been and and the way they've controlled play. And it's the only line on the Canucks that has a couple of guys that are really effective at getting in on the forecheck, hassling defenders, creating turnovers. They're, even even the Pedersen line with Mikheyev on it, Mikheyev kind of has to be that guy. You're not expecting mm-hmm. that from Pedersen or Kuzmenko. And then you look into the bottom six, Dakota Joshua can be that guy, but it's not necessarily consistent. You're not... You know, that that's not a hallmark of Beauvilliers' game, I wouldn't say. Garland, you know, to a certain extent can do it, but obviously he's a smaller forward, so less effective at that at times. And that, to me, you know, there's a direct correlation there between a couple of guys that can be physical in Miller and DiGiuseppe that get in on the 4-4 check, that make it hard on the other team's defense, create turnovers, and then have the skill to not just create those turnovers, but to set up plays. And that's part of the reason why Brock Besser has been scoring as much as he has to start the year is because of how effective that line is. 
it's the only line on the team that has two guys that can do it on the same line. And so getting Mikheyev back onto that Pedersen line, while, you know, there aren't two of them, he can help in that regard and create more opportunities for Pedersen and Kuzmenko. Is there a place for Nils Hoaglander on this team? I don't know. I, I really don't. And, you know, we'll, we'll see if he comes back into the lineup tonight. But if they continue with that, uh, that, uh, uh, that skilled line, undersized skill line that they had as their quote-unquote fourth line the other night with Beauvillier and Garland on the wings. Maybe that's a spot that he could find a home because, you know, if you look at the way they constructed their lines, um, you know, they have the line with with Joshua on it, and that feels like more of a, a, a matchup line, and I would imagine that's where Teddy Bluger goes when he gets back in the lineup, and that's a lineup or a line that, that makes it hard on the opponents, and they're kind of more of a checking line, and you're not expecting that much offense from them. Then, obviously, you have your top two skilled lines, and that other line kind of feels like, you know, a line of, of misfit toys to a certain extent, but with players like Beauvillier, like Garland, potentially like Hoaglander on that line, those are all guys who have the ability to produce Mm -hmm. points and have offensive upside in their game. So what I would like to see from that line is, assuming that Suter ends up there if Bluger goes on the other line uh, when he gets back in the lineup, especially when you're at home, that to me is a line that you can get out there in favorable matchups because you you probably trust the other three lines more to play against the, the top players on other teams. So if you can get some of those guys out there in favorable spots against the third defensive pairing of the other team or the third or fourth line, then that could be an opportunity for them to generate generate some offense and have some bottom six scoring. And so to me, I look at that and I say, maybe that's a home for Hoaglander, but the only way I think he finds a home there consistently is if they're able to trade Garland, because then there's an obvious spot that opens up in the lineup and Hoaglander probably gets in there more consistently. But at the same time, you know, I I haven't talked to Rick talking about this, so I don't know, but I would be willing to guess that based on the way Hoaglander has played to start this season, based on how high he's been on Niels Oman and his play through training camp and last year, you know, if you caught Rick talking in an honest moment, I'm sure he would probably tell you that he would rather have Niels Oman on his roster right now than yeah. Niels Hoaglander. And the reason Hoaglander's still there is because of the, uh, you know, the waiver situation and the fact that he would have to go on waivers to be sent down or, or potentially be traded. So if your head coach doesn't even think that he's one of the best 13 forwards you have, then I don't see a long-term fit for Hoaglander with this group. Now, if he can get into the lineup, if he can play with some more consistency, if he can do some of the things that talking to the coaching staff want him to do and also produce a bottom line of offense, then that is kind of what he needs to do to be able to stick with this group. But it's something now that uh, we've seen decrease head coaches in terms of um, you know his role, although Travis Green I think still played him a fair bit in in the, the late days of his time as a Canucks head coach but um, Boudreaux didn't trust him, moved him down the lineup moved him into the press box. We've already seen Talkett move him down the lineup and move him into the press box. And that, to me, is not just, um, 
you know, something that, that you can just discount and say, oh, those guys all don't like Hoaglander. They don't appreciate him. NHL head coaches know what they're working with. And the fact that it's at least two head coaches now that haven't seen Hoaglander having a good, consistent fit in their lineup to me is concerning for his long-term future with the team. Uh, Batch, real quick, um, I hate to put you on the spot here, but what is the latest on Teddy Bluger? It's easy to, to like completely forgotten about that guy. Yeah, the only thing I know is that he wasn't expected to play on the trip. I, I haven't heard anything more recently in terms of how soon he might be expected back, whether he could get into the games on Friday and Saturday when they're back home at, at Rogers Arena. So I'm sure that's something that uh, Rick Tockett will address at some point here over the next few days, either uh, today leading up to the game or uh, when they get back to Vancouver in, in the next couple of days here. But uh, for something that initially looked like a, a shot block and then Talkett alluded to it as a, a bruise. Uh, it's clearly much more than that. And uh, hopefully it's not something that keeps him out of the lineup too, too long because I think he would really help them in the bottom six. Batch, this was great, man. Thanks for doing it. Uh, have a good call tonight. Enjoy the game. We'll do this again next week. Yep, sounds good. Thanks, guys. Thank you. That's Brendan Batchelor, play-by-play voice of the Vancouver Canucks, right here on Sportsnet 650. So there's a, there's a texter texting in about the bottom six. Okay. And he asked, was this the bottom six at practice on Saturday? Joshua, Suter, Garland, Hoaglander, Lafferty, Beauvillier. And I said, yeah. That's and he six. replied, that's a nice looking bottom six, isn't it? And in theory, you know, you know what he's talking about, right? Like you've got Garland and Beauvillier who have done things in this league and they're a bottom six role. Um, maybe getting out there against some softer matchups. You got Puce Suter, who's a pretty smart player. Dakota Joshua brings some size and strength. Lafferty that brings some speed. And then if it's Hoaglander or maybe Nils Amon, if he gets a chance, you know, maybe you've got some youthful energy in there too. I get what the texture's saying. Mm-hmm. Like there is something there, but I just don't know how it's all come together. And I also don't know if Rick Tockett is quite ready to say that everyone is on board with how he wants to play. And if everyone's not on board with how he wants to play, that means that people have different ideas about how to play, right? And the, mm-hmm. and to, to have all four lines rolling, yes, it's a, bi- a big thing as personnel, right? Like you need the right players, but you also have to have that identity, especially in the bottom six. And for me, I'm looking at, you know, you got Garland and Beauvillier and Dakota Joshua. To me, it's like, it's just like a mishmash of players there. That's how I'd put it. Yeah, just, and and sometimes that's good, right? Like sometimes you want a different style of player. Like you want one big guy to win the battles, a a skill guy, and, you know, maybe a, a good defensive guy. But it's all just about, like, it's about chemistry, but it's also about the identity of the Canucks. And I think that's where, if you were to ask Rick Toggin, he'd tell you, he's like, they're still not there. They're still not playing exactly like he wants them to play. Yeah, and I think a lot of it has to do with fit. Is Sometimes things work for no particular reason. Sometimes you just stumble upon things, like Phil Giuseppe is a top-six, second-line winger that really adds something of value to that line, mm-hmm. and it just works. Chemistry is very tough to predict. I think what you're still seeing, because it is early days, is a lot of moving parts. Like You don't necessarily want Garland as a bottom-six forward, but you're kind of stuck with it. Yeah, it, dep- you- it depends on what you want that third line to look like. You know, In Pittsburgh, you wouldn't say, well, Phil Kessel, bottom-six forward. But that third line that he was on uh, with um, 
Hagland, who brought speed and Benino. Mm-hmm. Puck distributor and pretty smart center, although not particularly fleet of foot. Like, that's a mishmash of players a bit right of there, but for, for whatever reason, it worked. Well, there's a bit of chicken and an egg with this whole thing, right? It's like, do you set about what you want your bottom six to look like and then tell the guys to play it, or do you allow them to dictate what it's going to be? Like, the, mm-hmm. I don't think, I think Tockett has an idea of what he wants guys to do. I also think it's a lot of different things. Like, do you want your bottom six to be hard on pucks? Yes. Would you like them to chip in with offense from time to time? Yes. <laughs> also, yes. Would you like them to be hard four checkers? Yes. Would you like them to have speed? Absolutely. You want all those things. Yeah. The key is to find it. And I'll say this. I wouldn't get too enamored <laughs> with any combo in that bottom six. Because once Bluger comes back in. I don't think anyone's too enamored. Enamored with anything. Like, <laughs> well, no, because well, we just had a texter that was enamored with it. He even dropped an F-bomb. He well, so he just kind of. Nice said, looking he, bottom six, right? I wouldn't get enamored with anything because mm-hmm. I think once Bluger comes back in, it's going to look different once again. Who comes out? I, You know. I, Hoaglander. I, yeah. Hoaglander. Right? Hoaglander yeah. and Stadnicker at the. And hopefully, Gar- and hopefully Garland in a trade. They're the runts of the right? letter, right? They're the ones fighting at the Yeah, I guess if right? when Garland gets traded. The other thing, too, point. right, like, they have to break up those cycles better in the defensive zone. They can't let the other teams just keep passing it around and getting second opportunities and keeping the pressure on the players. And a lot of that, we're not picking on Tyler Myers, but this is just the reality. If your defenseman cannot break up the cycle and get the puck going the other way, it doesn't really matter what your bottom six is going to do in the offensive zone because uh, they'll never be there. You're listening to the best of Halford and Bruff.